as we consider his word. O God and our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman, redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, we finished our series on the study of the ten words. We began that study because of a consideration of Jesus' last words on the day of his ascension. I'll remind you of that now. Beginning in Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Amen. And we, we see here that Jesus gave his disciples a mission under his authority. Remember he says this, all authority, not some, not partial, but all authority, where? In heaven and on earth. This mission isn't just for his disciples of that day, but in fact is our mission as well. We are His church, and we are individually given this task of going, discipling, baptizing, and teaching them to observe. Now, a lot of times we've been taught, we've grown up thinking individually minded, and we need to be thinking, yes, we are individuals, we have experiences, we each have our own realms of influence, but we are also the church. When a person becomes a member here, they they take vows. Of course, they start with their commitments and dependence on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins to be reconciled to God. And then the vows focus on their relational promises to the other members. Just to remind you of this, I want to read them to you so you can think about them as we consider Scripture today. It says this, These are the questions that we ask. Do you promise to support this church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And of course, at the end of each of these, the the folks acknowledge this. Are you willing to submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church? And do you promise to strive earnestly for its purity and peace? Will you refrain from the sin of gossip and grumbling and boldly strive to be at peace and in fellowship with all of your brethren at all times to the best of your ability. And then everyone who's already a member takes this vow. I say it this way, members of Christ Reformed Evangelical Church, as a congregation of Jesus Christ, do you receive these saints into the covenant of fellowship of this local church together with you? And of course, if so, please respond by saying amen. And so we do that. And by God's good providence, we've had to do that a lot over the last, oh, I don't know, 18 months, maybe 24 months. But you know, it isn't just there. But we should also be reminded that when we do baptisms, especially with children, we also make promises. Remember after after the parents come up and they 
speak of their dependence on Jesus Christ and their belief in trusting for their child to belong to God. Right? I make a charge to you, the congregation. Do you, the congregation of Christ Reformed Evangelical Church, promise to undertake the responsibility of assisting these, and I speak the names of the parents, as they nurture their child in the Christian faith and practice to the glory of God? And then I say to all of us, if so, say we do. And everyone gets excited, says we do. But why do we make these commitments to each other in membership and in baptisms? We are the body of Christ. We are God's people connected by God's preordained, unmerited favor, that is grace. The Great Commission is not an individual call, but rather the call for all His people. For the remaining season of Pentecost, that is the church season of the church calendar, we will do an overview of the book of Ephesians to consider what it means to be God's covenant people, the church. So I want to take this, this is all setting us up, helping us to think through what are we doing. We've, we've talked a lot about trying to understand what God has commanded us, what Jesus has commanded us in relationship to the ten words of the ten commandments, right? And now we're going to say, all right, we've got this structure out here of, of ways to behave and think and live in relationship to God and in relationship to others. And now we're going to say, all right, what does it mean for us to be the people of God together? And we're going to look at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and spend some time on that. Now, it's not going to be a verse-by-verse exposition. We don't have that much time left in the season of Pentecost or the church calendar part of the season because we want to when advent begins from advent to pentecost we focus on the gospels and we learn if we're going to be disciples of jesus christ we learn all about him and his life and his mission for us and for the world right now we're still working on what does this mean for us as the people of god so i want us to think about this we kind of live sometimes you feel like you are living in exile We saw today in our reading from Jeremiah that that Jeremiah is told to go and buy this piece of property from a family member and to put put those documents inside a clay jar for preservation. And where that ordinarily would happen would be at the temple. They would write these, the scribes would write them out, they'd seal them off, they'd put them in there. And it was the promise that they would return. For us, we look around We see chaos, we see conspiracies, or as we've sometimes seen or heard the the phrase, I need new conspiracies because all the rest have already come true. But in fact, we recognize around us that our culture, our country, and I'm going to argue the church has not been faithful And so, because the church has not been faithful, not penitent, not repentant of their sins, not faithful to following God's word, our communities and our country has fallen into chaos and sin and God's judgment. You know, we live in the age of self-fulfillment. 
And if you go out there and you look at what it means to be self-fulfilled, it's all about the individual. People should merely accept me as I am. The way I think I should be accepted, don't challenge me in any way. Don't, don't question anything. You know, it's interesting, in the development of our, our last several centuries, the idea of human rights has long been understood solely as an individual. And it's rights against, you know, we originally thought it was more about against the state, but today it's really against everyone else. You know, this liberal view is often understood to mean that human rights only protect individuals. Now, of course, it's interesting. In order to enforce that, they've got to get some higher power to come in and force this out. But these rights, these desires to self-define, to make myself anything that I want, these types of delusions lead to isolation and loneliness. There's a recent report out that says that 36% of all Americans, including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, feel serious loneliness. And of course, we recognize that in the, the time of COVID and people stop, stopping all the things out there, even in worship in some cases, that that creates some of this. But this was a problem before it was just exasperated by the shutdowns the more that i say it's all about me and my life the more of an isolationist i become the more that i don't want to hear how to grow how to mature how to be in christ the more that i don't want to submit myself to what god's word says we are as his covenant people the more separated i become the more lonely i become we see that with Marxism and many who promote the ideas of individual self-fulfillment, that they work to find ways to divide peoples into smaller and smaller groups who envy, covet, and resent people from opposing groups. And of course, I'll just pause right here to say, let's think back to last week's sermon on not coveting and how envy is, is such a corruption of jealousy, righteous jealousy. Envy's like, well, if I can't have it, I don't want anybody else to have it either. But what they do is they create and divide. You know, division of peoples, division of thoughts, that's actually a curse from God. Remember the Tower of Babel where God brings a curse of division to those in rebellion to his word? Genesis 11.1 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Okay, now we see that and oftentimes because, and, and when we preached on this on the day of Pentecost, we went into this a little bit, but I want to remind you that when it says one language and one speech, that one language was really one lip. That's religious and cultural thinking. That's why they said, oh, if we just join together, we can do this. We can build this great this great mountain of our own, and we'll be like gods, right? The other part, one speech, is just the utterances, the words that they speak. And we see that down in, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, it says, Therefore, its name is called Babel, because Yahweh confused the language of all the earth, and from there 
Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Remember, at Pentecost Sunday, we learned that Pentecost was the removal of the curse of divisions of people through the work of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And in Acts 2, 6, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, that is God-fearers, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. At Pentecost, God says, no, in Christ we can finally bring the people back together and, and they hear in their languages. And by the way, remembering our symbolism, we see that if you look at a map, it's north, south, east, west. It's all directions, all directions that the truth of the gospel is being spoken the wonderful works of God in Jesus Christ. The world seems so divided, but the reality is that the church on a large scale is divided because of sin. Satan has placed temptations to be divided in denominations, in local churches, and even in the local assemblies like our very own church. And it's done in such ungodly ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the second half of verse 3 says, For there are, are envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Paul is telling the church in Corinth, stop it. Stop it. You're not mere men. You're not men and women simply. You are the people. You are the children of God. Do not behave in this way. Of course, this was written after Paul gave the Corinthian church an admonition in chapter 1, verse 10. And he says this, Now I plead with you, brethren, he's pleading with them, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He's telling them, stop it. Stop making all these divisions. Of course, the argument there was, well, man, I was baptized by this guy, and I was baptized by this one, and all these famous people in, from the early church. He says, no, you're all baptized into Christ. It's not about who did the baptizing. Now, we can have, some obviously, some discussions about what that means outside of the Trinitarian church, but I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. It's easy. We get out there. Reformed churches, I think, are the worst. We want to discuss and debate and divide over every little thing. People of God, when we get up here and we do these prayers, we're praying for other churches. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether or not everyone in that church is living righteously. Think about that in this room even. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are joined together. Now, we certainly need to be wise with those who deny Christ as defined in the Scriptures. In Romans 16, verse 17, it says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, 
contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. So, yes, we need to be careful. We need to, we need to make distinctions. But making a distinction with somebody is different than dividing and cutting off and, and, and not loving one another. And, again, we can say, well, there's people out here and that and this. In this room, we have debates. We have different thoughts, sometimes very strong ones. People of God, you are joined together. Just like myself and my brothers are always going to be brothers. I can't separate myself from them being my brothers. People of God in this room, regardless of what happens, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot separate that. Certainly there's a place for church discipline. That exists. But people of God don't get sidetracked by the exceptions. Focus on the general rule. All of this that we're talking about so far is to set our minds on what does it mean to be the church. We here today are in Christ and belong to God our Father. In Christ we are bound together as one body to be the glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. Now when you use words like this, it can sound strange and unclear. So I want us to look at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus to gain instruction and understanding. Let us hear God's word. We'll begin with Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise and glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are, this is important, in heaven and are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of his glory." In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of His glory. 
Now, if you stayed with me through the whole passage, I know it was a little long, and I'm going to highlight some things along the way, but there's a lot of great and important things here. The first thing I want to point out is about being saints. Right there it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So first of all, God calls Paul, and we know that story from the book of Acts, where God intervenes and calls Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus himself comes back and calls him. And we see that he is called by the will of God. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a second thought. It was God's plan. And he writes this and he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So what is this question here? Who are the saints? Are you a saint? Are we saints? He goes on and says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is important, this word Lord here. I'm going to come back to saints in a second. Lord Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth. Remember that? He makes that statement in the Great Commission that we read earlier. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus is Lord over all. This matters. As a matter of fact, when we did the Lord's Prayer, what did we sing? We said, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. And of course, it finishes up the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. People of God, despite the chaos, despite the divisions, Jesus is Lord of all, of both in heaven and on earth. And when we pray, we are asking God to do his finished work on the earth. Now, as Paul speaks to the whole church in Ephesus, he calls all of them saints. What is a saint? The Greek word hagios means holy thing or saint. Really, a saint is a person who has access to the sanctuary. People of God, when we come in this room in our church service, we have a call, we worship God, we confess our sins, and we're ushered up into the presence, we're ushered up into the heavens, into the throne room. That's what's happening here. Today we're being instructed from His Word, from His throne room. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have access to the throne room. The Old Testament teaches us that before Christ, there are degrees of separation from God. Adam and Eve start in the Garden of Eden, and after they sin against God, they are separated from where God comes down and meets with men. And from the Garden of Eden, they are then placed into the land of Eden. Following Cain and Abel and their terrible situation, Cain is pushed out again by his sin, out of the land of Eden into the land of Nod. The more trespasses or sins we commit and stack up, the farther from God we are. The same model is given to us with the tabernacle and temple. First, we see the Holy of Holies, the place where God is. The most holy place and the courtyard, and there's limited access, right? The Levites are there. 
the worshiper can come into the courtyard temporarily, and then, the, then, then you have only the Levites, only the priests can go a little bit farther in, and only one priest once a year can go in the Holy of Holies because of sin, these degrees of separation from God. But we also see on a larger scale the temple, the land of Israel, and then the world, the same degrees of separation. By the work of Jesus Christ, the people of God are made holy and we have access to the throne of God. We must clearly understand that there is no blessing outside of the church. What I'm saying right now is God's ordinary means of salvation to the world comes through His people, through His church. It is not simply me and my Bible, my views, my thinking. That's isolationism. And that is about degrees of separation from God. Last week, at our commissioning blessing, right before that, I asked everyone this week to read Psalm 67. There'll be a test and quiz after today's service. Now, this was to remind us of our priestly work to the nations. You see, the blessing that you receive is designed as a priestly blessing. We know it's Aaron's blessing. Right, But it's also, you see, in Psalm 67, we see that it is the blessing for the people of God to reach the nations. Because we are saints and we have access to the Father through Jesus, we come before the throne room of God. This is why we come up here and we make these prayers of petition and praise and thanksgiving. That's why the men come up here and do this. Because now we're in the throne room of God and Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and in that moment we are in God's presence and we are taking these prayers and petitions to God. Not that God doesn't hear you at home, but this is a special situation here. This is where we begin. This is where we are strengthened as God's people to go out and fulfill that priestly commission to the world. The second thing I want us to see in this passage is the plurality of this passage. First of all, the word isn't singular you saint it's not god and paul and, and and the inspired word of god is not speaking simply to you as individuals but as all of us collectively and you see because that's plural then the you that shows up in that same place is about the plurality of all the saints then paul says we two times our two times and us seven times and it isn't just simply talking about himself and one individual he is talking about himself and all of the people of God and in particular the church there in Ephesus he is speaking to the collective saints all the epistles were written to churches even in Revelation Jesus speaks to the seven churches he also speaks to the angel of the seven church, and we'll talk about that more in our eschatology Sunday school class. But he's still speaking to the churches. We are certainly individuals, but we make up the covenant people of God, and we are bound together inseparably in Christ. Now we see as we look at this passage that there is a response of prayer, and at first reading you might not catch on. But you see this greeting and then these thanks, this prayer, this response of prayer of giving thanks. 
And we're going to go into two sections of that and then praying God to fill it up and bless it and bring it to fulfillment, to bring the church to its fullness. You can see this in Romans 8, 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, Philippians 1, 3 through 6. We also see that it, it, it completes its prayer there in Philippians in verses 9 and 11. We see it again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and completely in Ephesians chapters 1, goes on into 2, but 1 really completes the first idea of this prayer. The prayer in Ephesians 1 demonstrates a model of prayer from the Old Testament. And it's interesting, as we did some singing today, and I thought about that, and some of you might have thought, whew, we sang that one psalm, and it had seven verses, and it covered a lot of stuff, and man, what's the deal? Right? Come on, tell the truth. Everybody thought that once at some point during that song. Really? Two more verses? Okay. But God instructs us and teaches us from His creation. In this way, these prayers are set up in this way. There's always a thanks for creation. And then there's a thanks for redemption. And finally, a prayer of the for the fulfillment of his kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed, that is praised, be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed. That is, he gave gifts to cause to, cause to prosper. He's given gifts to, to make happy, to, to bestow blessings upon, to be favored of God. And he did all of this with every spiritual blessing. That is, it's a, con it's a consecrated benefit. And where did he do this? In heavenly places, in Christ. So all these blessings were coming. We know that salvation comes through the work of Jesus Christ here on earth. But then he is placed in the lordship position at the ascension, at the right hand of God. So all these gifts that are proceeding from God the Father and God the Son by the Spirit are coming from heaven. Verse 4, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holding without blame. So again, you see creation is here, before creation. Having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself. Why? According to the good pleasure of his will, he chose us. When? Before the foundation of the world, he predestined us to, to adoption. And then there's praise of the glory of His grace. And He made us accepted in the Beloved. In what? In Christ. So before creation, He chose us as His people by His will, and we draw comfort and strength from this. Because if you're honest, not one of us sitting here today feels good about how our sins make us separated from God. It is only through confession of sin that we are able to draw near. It's only because He chose us. He illuminated our eyes. He opened us up so that we could understand by the power of His Spirit these things. Praise God for that. We draw comfort and strength and steadiness because before the foundation of the world, He chose us. 
do not let the chaos in the world cause you distress or doubt in God. For this we give praise for His providence in creation. We see beginning in verse 7, the giving of thanks for redemption. In Him we, that's collectively we, the people of God, have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches Now, this is important. Why does he have riches to give us? Why does he need to give us riches? It's because when we sin against God, when we trespass against God, we stack up debt. And we cannot pay these debts to God. I'm just going to say this real quick. Sometimes people get this wrong and they think the debt is owed to Satan. That's not true. When we sin against God, Satan is just a distraction over here. He was a tempter, but he has no power. The debt we owe is to God, and it is through the work of Jesus Christ that our trespasses through His riches that our debt is paid. And that cancels that debt so that we are able to be in His throne room. And these are riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, a word we don't use much. This word prudence is knowledge and the holy love of the will of God. And having made known, this is the Spirit's gift that's mentioned in verse 3, to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation, now this is again a word we don't use much, that He purposed in Himself that in, and this is really the management and administration. In other words, God had a plan and He's working it out by the work of the Spirit to give you the gifts so that you, through the work of Jesus Christ, can be collectively as the people of God in the throne room of God. And he says this, of the fullness of times that he might gather together, what? In one, all of us, in one, in Christ, both, which are where? In heaven and on earth. So it is the things of God that are going on in heaven are being played out, here on earth the promises in heaven the fulfillment of all things and of the church and of god's people is worked out not simply as some spiritual thing ethereal thing out there but actually right here where you live in your life in your marriages in your jobs despite all the chaos you may see he, he might gather together and want all things in Christ, which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. <coughs> in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to His counsel and will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So giving all this thanksgiving for His redemptive work, Verse 13, in Him you also trusted. So because of this, in Him we trust. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Like in baptism. And we see this. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of of his glory. God is the one who sustains us. God keeps us to the last day. 
Put your trust in him. Believe in God for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe in the work of Jesus Christ to be reconciled to him. But it is the spirit that keeps us. It's not your It's not your own doing. We have this idea that, hey, I know that it's through faith that I get saved. We start there. It's all on God. And then somehow we think after salvation that it is simply we we keep our salvation by doing good works. Now, as, as it says in James, show me your faith with good works. But that's out of love for what God has done for you, not because you're you're keeping your salvation by righteous acts. The Spirit keeps you. So we thank God our Father for creation. We thank God our Father for redemption. And this is interesting. We often resist giving thanks because thanks reminds us, giving thanks reminds us of our dependence. And so sometimes we resent our dependence on God. And because of this, We don't want to give thanksgiving. We don't want to give thanks. Repent of that resentment. We covet being God. Repent of it. Now because of of these things, that is, giving thanks to God for creation and for redemption, we ask God for the fulfillment of His will and kingdom because He's been setting that all up. We're giving thanks. We're acknowledging Christ as Lord on heaven and on earth, and we have a calling to do, to reach the nations, to live in this world and be faithful. It is right that we ask God to fulfill His promises. Quickly here, we're going to go through the last few verses of chapter 1, and I want you to hear this prayer that Paul gives in relationship to the saints of God, to these people in relationship to having given thanks for creation and giving thanks for His redemption. Therefore... I also, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Why? That you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? Again, giving thanks. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he did what? Raised him for the dead, giving him thanks for that, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above every principality and power, might and dominion, and every crazy chaos right now going on in the world. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age which is to come. And finally he says, and he put all things under his feet. That is past tense. He already put all things under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to who? The church, which is his body, the fullness who fills all in all. So Paul again goes back through, he takes those principles he laid out in the first half of the chapter and he comes back in, gives thanks and praise to God in creation and in the work of Christ for redemption. And then he says, 
He put all things under his feet and gave him to be a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is saying everything in heaven and earth. I've called you to this mission. I am with you. As it says in Matthew 28, to the very end of the age, he's calling us. In conclusion, I want to say this to you all. We need to live in belief of these things. Let us hear from Jeremiah 29. And this again brings us back to thinking about sometimes we're in this place of exile. And perhaps our country, and I believe in many ways, is under judgment. And we do feel exiled from other peoples of God, particularly in a place of power and government and so many what appears to be merely God-haters all around us in this greater community here. Remember what God says to the people in Jeremiah 29. Thus says Yahweh, the host of God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem and Babylon. He caused that, and he's causing it now. What is he doing? He's disciplining the church. He's disciplining the country. He's disciplining our, our world. So he says, he tells them this, I've caused these things to happen. And then he says, so build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to Yahweh for it, in its peace, for in its peace you will have peace. We need to not let the worries of the chaos of this world to keep us from being the body of Christ, His church. We need to be working, taking spouses, having children, discipling our families within our homes and within the church. And together doing it, laboring together. We should seek the peace of the city where we are. We are to pray for peace. And when our city has peace, we too will have peace. Let us pray. O Lord and our God, we give thanks for this, your word. We thank you that Paul summons us to give thanks for creation, to give thanks for redemption, and to ask you to complete your will and good work here on earth as it is in heaven. In your Son's holy name, Jesus. Amen.